Amen. I'd ask you if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John in chapter 13. John chapter 13. We're going to be focusing most especially on verses 34 and 35, but to set the context, we're going to read from verses 1 to verse 35. And if you're able, I'd ask you to stand with me out of respect for God's Word while I read this passage for us. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, and that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterwards you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who is bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should also do just as I've done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen. But the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Truly I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain about which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus, Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus replied, he is the one I give the piece of bread to after I've dipped it. And when he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. None of those reclining at the table knew why he said this to him. Since Judas kept the money back, some thought that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival, or that he should give something to the poor. After receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left, and it was night. When he had left, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him at once. Children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I'm going, you cannot come. I give you a new command. 
love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. Amen. As you can tell, these two verses are focused on love. In his sermon entitled, Heaven is a World of Love, Jonathan Edwards described the love that characterizes heaven this way. He says, Christ loves all his saints in heaven. His love flows out to his whole church there and to every individual member of it. And they all, with one heart and one soul, unite in love to their common Redeemer. Every heart is wedded to this holy and spiritual husband, and all rejoice in him while the angels join them in their love. And the angels and saints all love each other. All the members of the glorious society of heaven are sincerely united. There is not a single secret or open enemy among them all. Not a heart is there that is not full of love, and not a solitary inhabitant that is not beloved by all the others. And as they are all lovely, so all see each other's loveliness with full happiness and delight. Every soul goes out in love to every other, and among all the blessed inhabitants, love is mutual and full and eternal. Yeah, it's a picture of the reality of heaven where, where Christ's love goes out to his glorified people. And as glorified people, they love one another and they love him. And so all of heaven is characterized by this wondrous, infinite, and everlasting love. So love in heaven is not a trickle, it's a torrent. As each and every inhabitant of heaven just pours out love towards others. Holy angels join in that love towards all. Everyone in heaven will delight in everyone else. There will be no enemies there. There will be no bitterness there. There will be no brokenness of relationship there. They will love perfectly and they will do so for all eternity. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? It should certainly make us want to be in heaven with Christ and with those who have gone on before us to be with him there. But what if I told you, and this is really kind of the focus for our hearts this morning as a church, what if I told you that God wanted us to experience that kind of love here and now? The very love of heaven. The Bible teaches the very love of heaven should characterize the relationships of God's people here on earth now. Now, given your past experience in church, you, you may perhaps feel like that's impossible for you to experience something like that. But in our passage for study this morning, that, that's the command, that's the heart of the command that the Lord Jesus is giving to his disciples, uh, that we would love one another. Indeed, that we would love one another uh, in the way that Christ has loved us. And that is a massive, massive statement. In other words, brothers and sisters of Christ fellowship, our relationships with one another in this church are to be a foretaste of heaven. It's to be a foretaste of the kind of relationships we're going to enjoy forever and ever and ever when we are with Christ there. More than that, we're going to see that our love for one another in the church is the final evidence to a watching world that we belong to Jesus. We're taking a, kind of a special Sunday to think about this, in particular because we have these community groups beginning in the fall, and we want to think about what are ways that we as a church can grow in our relationships with one another. 
because two hours on a Sunday morning is a good thing. We're grateful for that time. And yet relationships take time. And we just want you to know that community groups are another opportunity, another avenue for growing in your relationships with others. And we want to see those relationships characterized by love. And so we want to kind of get at this commandment of the Lord Jesus to love by looking at John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35 this morning. Let me give you some, let me give you some background on the gospel of John before we dive in. So the Gospel of John was written probably in the late 80s or 90s AD by the aged Apostle John. Uh, it is a unique gospel in the sense that it is written specifically uh, to tell non-believers about Christ and what he's done so that they might turn from their sins and trust in him. Listen to how John put this in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. John said, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, I love that because what that means, particularly if you're here this morning and, and you're perhaps just checking out Christianity, what that means is that we understand Christianity to be a historical faith where Christ has done things in real space and time history. Uh, so that our, our faith is not just kind of a collection of nice thoughts about how to be a nice person, but it is rooted in history and the actions of Christ, this one who did things that only God could do, this one who loved others with the very love of God. And we want to commend him to you this morning as we think about what it means to love others because he is unique and perfect in the way that he loved. He's a gracious Savior, and we want you to trust in him. Let's think about John's gospel. Well, the first half of John's gospel, uh, chapters 1 to 12, is structured around these seven signs, uh, these seven miracles that Jesus performed. And each one of those miracles really points to Jesus' deity, that he's not just a man, he's not just a philosopher, but he's the God-man. He is God, very God. The second half of the book really focuses more on Christ's work on the cross. It's chapters 13 to 21. Really, the main focus is Christ's work on the cross and dying for sinners like us so that we might be reconciled. But that second section really begins with what's known as the upper room discourse. This is a sweet time in the life of the Lord Jesus. It is poignant because when you think about it, what is happening is this is Christ spending his final minutes and hours with his disciples. Uh, men that he spent three years with. What's on his heart? What's on his mind just before he goes to the cross? Well, this is where he begins to tell us this. It is a majestic portion of scripture, and it's so fruitful, so edifying. The, the discourse begins with Christ washing his disciples' feet, and that is, a, that is an amazing thing because Jesus is God. And to wash someone's feet was to do the lowest job of the lowest slave in the house. And Jesus, who was God, very God, delighted to serve his disciples in that way. And then he gives them this command, this command, which is going to be the focus of the sermon this morning, verses 34 and 35. I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This morning, we're going to study this passage using two points. If you're taking notes, two points from John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. First, we're going to see the command to love, command to love in verse 34. And second, we're going to see the evidence that love provides. We'll see that in verse 35. And just to give you some guideposts, we're going to spend most of our time this morning on that first point, 
And then we're going to cover the second point more briefly. Let's look first at that first point, the command to love, verse 34. The story is told of James Usher. James Usher was the Archbishop of Ireland. He loved the Lord Jesus. He was a faithful evangelical minister of the gospel living in the 17th century. But he heard about a brother pastor by the name of Samuel Rutherford, who was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor. And he wanted to meet him. And so he traveled to Samuel Rutherford's home, but he didn't want to be recognized as an archbishop. And so he disguised himself as a beggar and he showed up on the door of the home. And of course, in that time, he was welcomed in with hospitality and he was given a room and a place to stay. Well, that, the next day was going to be the Lord's Day. And as was the custom of the time, Mrs. Rutherford, she gathered the household together in order to read scripture together and to give good instruction as they prepared their hearts to worship the Lord on the Lord's Day. And she asked Usher, who she assumed was a, a beggar, just kind of a poor old beggar, she asked him this question, how many commandments are there? To that, he said, 11. Now, Mrs. Rutherford was taken aback by that. And she looked at him and she said, you should be ashamed. Every child in this parish over six knows that there are 10 commandments. Well, the next morning, Rutherford came across Usher. Usher had gotten up early in order to pray. He was praying for the Lord's blessing uh, on the service. That's a good thing for you guys to be doing for us as we prepare to gather together. Wake up early on Sunday. Pray that the Lord would bless us. That's what he's doing. Rutherford came across him and realized who he was. Realized that he was the Archbishop of Ireland. And he immediately asked Usher if he would preach uh, in the service that morning. And Usher agreed on one condition uh, that Rutherford would not uh, make him known, would not let anyone know who he was. And when he stood up to preach that morning, his text was John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, love one another. This text that we're studying this morning. And as he gave out that text in those words, he remarked that this new commandment could rightly be considered the 11th commandment. And Rutherford's wife was shocked. And she said, why, that's the answer the old man gave last night. That can't be him, could it? But of course it was him. Now I tell you this story this morning because I find in my own heart, maybe you are, we are prone to forget this new commandment. But it carries all the authority that Sinai did. And what was on the Lord Jesus' heart just before he died? It was this commandment. So let's look at this commandment again in verse 34. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Now, the, the command is simple enough. We can all understand what he's saying, love one another. The question is, what does he mean? What does he mean when he says, love one another? Let's try to get at the meaning by asking and then answering two questions. First question is this, what does it mean to love? And the second question we want to ask is, why does Jesus call this new commandment new? What's new about it? Well, the first question then, what does it mean to love? After all, in our day, many promote love as the highest virtue. You hear it all the time. Love is love. And of course, people are encouraged to love anyone that they would like to love. But if you think about the kind of love that the world is offering, the kind of love that you see portrayed in, in movies and popular songs, it's really nothing more than infatuation. It's an emotion that comes and it can leave just as quickly as it comes. The love the culture promotes is cheap. It's a tinsel love. It's actually, when you think about it, quite selfish. At the end of the day, the love that our culture promotes is a love that is entirely centered on me and what I get out of it, what I get from you. Is that the kind of love that Jesus was speaking about in this passage? The answer, brothers and sisters, 
is no. The word for love here that Jesus uses is the familiar Greek word agape. It's the word that's used for the love of God all throughout the New Testament. It refers to a self-sacrificial love. The kind of love Jesus is talking about is a love that's willing to die. It's a love that's willing to lay down its rights, its preferences, its desires in order to do good to the one who is loved. Paul describes this love for us in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 8, which our brother Durward read for us earlier in the service. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, now this love, this, this kind of self-sacrificing, persevering, hopeful love is the kind of love that we're being commanded, that the Lord Jesus is commanding his disciples and us that we are to have in our lives for others so that we would love them in this way. This is a love that is not produced by self-effort. We have to understand this, church, because if you really think about the demands of this commandment, you're going to be overwhelmed when you look at your own resources. This is the love of God that is given to us by the Holy Spirit so that we are called to actually love other people with the very love of God that the Holy Spirit produces in us. This is a spiritual thing that works itself out in our lives in practical ways as we stop demanding that others would serve us and instead begin to delight to be the lowest for the sake of blessing and serving others. J.C. Ryle described the way we should love one another as believers this way. He said, love ought to show itself forth in all of our dealings with other Christians. We should regard them as brothers and sisters and delight to do anything to promote their happiness. We should abhor the idea of envy, malice, and jealousy towards a member of Christ and regard it a downright sin. This is what our Lord meant when he told us to love one another. Christ Fellowship, what the Lord is saying to us is that we must love one another deeply and sacrificially and perseveringly. We must love one another with the very love of God. That's the command. That's what it means to love. Now, what a challenging command, right? Second question. Why does Jesus call this new commandment new? What's new about it? After all, the command to love others is not new in the Old Testament, uh, particularly when you look at Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. Moses commanded the Israelites that they should love their neighbors as themselves. So here's love focused on others. And Jesus comes and Jesus in his ministry says that that is the second greatest commandment. First is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. Now, why then? If that command to love others is already there, why then does he call this commandment new? Why is this a new commandment? Let me give you three ways that this command to love is new. First, the command to love is new in its focus. Uh, so Moses gave the people of Israel a command to love, to love their neighbors as themselves. And when Jesus comes, he shows us the full weight of that because our neighbor is who? Our neighbor is really anyone that we come in contact with as we go through our lives. And so that command to love your neighbors yourself is a very general command, and it means that we are to love others who are made in God's image as we love ourselves. 
It's a broad command. It encompasses anyone we will ever meet. But Jesus' command here is new now because the focus is different. Actually, the focus is more narrow. It's more specific. Notice he says, love one another. Now, who are the one another's? Well, who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples. Who are the one another's? Well, they're followers of Jesus. Uh, there's those who are trusting in Christ for salvation. There are those who have a relationship with Christ. And because they have a relationship with Christ, they have a relationship with one another so that, brothers and sisters, listen, when we say brothers and sisters, we mean it. That's what we are. And we must think of each other in that way. Indeed, love is the essential thing in our relationships with one another. It's the essential thing. It, without it, listen, ministry is useless. You heard that from 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, what? I'm a noisy gong. I'm a clanging cymbal. If I don't love the person I'm seeking to minister to, that, that ministry, ultimately, it's something that's irritating in the ear of God, if you will. This love is important. It's vital. The early church father, Jerome, he used to tell a story about the apostle John. Uh, this is again in the 90s. At this point, the apostle John, he's outlived all of the other disciples. Uh, he's nearly 100 years old. They have to carry him into church at this point. He's no longer able to speak clearly, so it's very difficult for them to understand what he's saying. But, but he had this habit, and the habit was that he repeatedly looked around him to the, the members of the church, and he said, little children love one another. Little children love one another. And he repeated it over and over, and after a while, the disciples came to him, or the, the members of the church, they came to him, and they said, why do you keep repeating this same command? He says, because it's the Lord's command. And if it alone is done, it's enough. If we are committed to loving one another, we're going to get everything else right in our relationships. This is the essential thing. So the command to love is new because its focus is new. We are to have a special love for those who belong to Jesus. Second, this command is new in its intensity. Now Moses' command to the people of Israel was, it was a lofty command. Love your neighbor as yourself. After all, we all love ourselves deeply. How do you know? Well, we care for ourselves, don't we? When we're hungry, we eat. When we're thirsty, we drink. When we're sick, we rest or we go see a doctor. We brush her teeth, we comb her hair. We, we, that's a good thing to do for others too. When people reject us and make fun of us, we're deeply hurt. We love ourselves a lot. And one of the most painful things is when we feel rejected by others, what happens? It's deeply painful, isn't it? Why? Because we do love ourselves. And this command is a lofty command. The command of Moses is a lofty command because it calls us to love others to that same degree, that we would love them as we love ourselves. But now Jesus' command, this new commandment, it is, it's infinitely higher. What's the standard? Well, look at the end of verse 34. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now let that sink in. Jesus is telling his disciples that they are to love one another in the same way and to the same degree that he loved them. So here's the question. How did Jesus love his disciples? How did he love his disciples? Well, Jesus provided for his disciples, didn't he? He took them along with him for three years, and he made sure that each and every one of their needs was provided for. He was kind to his disciples in the way that he spoke and the way that he acted. He taught his disciples God's truth. Day after day, they were with him, and he never grew weary of teaching them the truth of God. In fact, he was careful about this. 
Uh, he would speak to the masses. You know, I mean, Jesus was a phenomenon. He would speak to the masses who were following him. He would use parables or, or kind of earthly stories with heavenly meanings. But then he would take his disciples aside and, and he would make sure that they understood those truths. Why? Because he loved them and he wanted them to understand. And of course, he was patient because the disciples never quite seemed to get it right. And yet over and over and over, he's instructing them as kind of the light of who he was as God and what his mission was as the Redeemer began to dawn upon their understanding. He continued to be patient with them and he served them. Uh, this is why we read all of John 13 to verse 35, because I just want you to think again about what it meant for Christ to serve his disciples. It meant that he who was God, very God, who came from God, was about to go back to God the Father, stooped to wash the feet of his disciples, which was the lowest job in society. There was no, there was no task of love that was too love for Christ to perform. A good model for us. He persevered in loving his disciples. Look at just verse 1 of chapter 13, where John says, Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. Keep in mind, Jesus knew that his disciples would forsake him later on that evening. But even in, even in their unfaithfulness, Christ remained faithful to continue to love them. But the greatest love, oh, the greatest love was displayed. The way he loved his disciples uh, so perfectly. Well, it was the cross, wasn't it? And because Jesus' mission was not to come and give us nice tips on how to live it wasn't to come and set a good moral example for us. It wasn't to teach us how to have our best life in this world. Jesus came to die. He came to give himself as a sacrifice, to bear in himself the wrath of God against our sins so that we might be saved. And that's the gospel. That's the heart of the message of Christianity. If you're here this morning checking out what the Bible is or, or who Christians are, the very heart of our faith is this particular message, this particular act of the Lord Jesus. His mission was to rescue us. And why do we need to be rescued? Well, it's because we're created by God and God is good and he's holy and he's made us for a relationship with him. We have a longing for God. Whether we realize it or not, we have a longing for God because we were created by God. We try to fill that longing with other things, but it doesn't matter how much we get or how much we acquire, or how much status we achieve. It's never, ever enough. Why? Because ultimately you have this God-shaped hole in your heart that can only be filled by Him. The problem is we are idolaters. We take what should be God's and we give it to someone else. We place something else in the center of our lives uh, that is to us more important than God. And that leads us to rebel against God, to break his commands, to harm others as well. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible says no one can be good enough. No one can be, no one can be Christian-y enough. No one can read the Bible enough or pray enough or give away enough money or do enough religious acts in some way to, to make up for the sins that we've committed against a perfectly holy God so that there is no hope in us. And the good news this morning is that there is hope and the hope is found in the fact that our God is loving. And in love, the Father sent his Son into this world. The, the eternal Son of God became a man, Jesus Christ, and Jesus lived a perfect life. He was living the life we should have lived, but we failed to live. And his mission ultimately was to die on the cross. Why? Because our sins must be punished. And here's the thing. Our sins will either be punished in us or it will be punished in him. 
And he gave himself as a substitute, as a sacrifice in the place of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. He died under the wrath of God, but then he rose from the dead. And now the message of the gospel is this, that if you will turn from your sins and you will put your trust wholly in Christ, in what he has done on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for sinners, if you'll rest in what he has done, well, you'll be forgiven for your sins. That's happened to countless people around you. Uh, We'd love to talk with you after the service this morning about what the Lord has done for us. And and we want you this morning to experience that salvation, that this morning would be the time that you would trust in Jesus and you would find life in him. You would experience what we've experienced, that the Lord Jesus is a gracious and loving Savior. Oh, we long for you to know that. We long for you to know that. Christ's fellowship At the cross, listen, we behold the intensity of Christ's love for us. That's where you see it most clearly. Uh, he, He didn't just die physically, friends. On the cross, he was bearing in himself the infinite wrath of the holy God against our sins. He was bearing in himself our guilt our transgressions. Oh, he's loved us. He did it perfectly. He did it to the end. So that at the end, he said what? It is finished. How has Christ loved us? He loved us to the end. And here's the thing. It's finished. And his love is such a thing that right now, in this moment, if you belong to Jesus, You will never be more loved by God than you are right now. Your emotions have nothing to do with it. You have been given the very love of God. It is placed on you. Why? Because you're in Christ right now. What an amazing Savior. What intense love that that Christ would give himself for us. Now, Now, think what this command says is we are now to love others as we've been loved. Now, who isn't humbled by that? Right, as we think about the weight of that, well, how could we possibly do that? Isn't it overwhelming? Our love is so weak, isn't it? Well, friends, here's the good news. We were never intended to love others from our own resources. There's a a third way that this commandment is new. You see, we must have help. The third way that this commandment is new is that it's new in its power. So Moses' commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, that was given to them, and the Israelites were to do that. They were to, to kind of be able to do that, and yet what? They failed miserably, and each and every one of us has failed miserably in ourselves to do that as well. And yet we're not called to to kind of muster up our own power to do this. No, this command is new because Jesus never expected his disciples to love one another based on our resources, based on our own power to do it. No, John 14, so just the next chapter over, John 14 records that, that later on that evening, just a little bit later, Jesus says, I'm going to send you a comforter. I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to send you a counselor. And what is the role of the counselor? Well, it is to guide us into all truth, but it is also to give us power. And what kind of power? Well, it's resurrection power. Uh, Ephesians chapter one, it's the very power that raised Christ from the dead. We have the Holy Spirit of God and the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. 
That means, very practically, listen, very practically, that means as we begin our day, one of the things we should do is come to him and say, I don't have any resources of love to love others in the way that you've commanded me to. You must give me your love for others so that as I strive with all of my ability, I know that you are doing this good work in me and enabling me to love in this way. Those who put their trust in Jesus, they receive that. Acts chapter 2, what happens? Flaming tongues come down upon the disciples. They are apostles. They are empowered. They are sent out. And these ones who are nothing in the eyes of the world, what do they do? They turn the world upside down. And when you trusted in Christ, brother or sister, when you trusted in Christ, you received the very same Holy Spirit of God. You receive the very same resources for love. What, a, what an amazing reality that we actually have what we need to live this way. It's going to be a battle because we still struggle with the flesh. But what the good news is, the spirit wars against the flesh, doesn't it? And we are strengthened and able. What will, what, what, so what is this commandment? What makes it new? Well, there's a new focus. We have a special love for brothers and sisters. There's a new intensity. We're to love one another as Christ has loved us. There's a new power, praise God. The Holy Spirit enables us to love one another in this way. Now, a last question. What will help us love one another as Christ has commanded us? Three answers. First, if we're to keep the new commandment, if we're to love in this way, we must meditate upon the gospel. Uh, Christianity, the, the, the pattern of change in Christianity is that we become like what we behold. Uh, if you give yourself to senselessness and violence and immorality and watching things that you shouldn't watch, you're going to become like those things. If you're all about money and you're constantly focused on your money, you're going to become greedy because you become like what you behold. But now we've been given this command what? To love as Christ loved. How's that going to happen? Well, we must behold Christ. We, we must look at the Gospels. We must consider his life. We must meditate on, on the greatness of his love for us in the Gospel. That has to be part of what we do as followers of Jesus is that we are looking to Christ we're seeing his love and we're trusting the Holy Spirit to use that to transform us so that we become more loving like Jesus. That means what? If you want to become like Jesus, you must spend time with Jesus. You must spend time with him. You must gaze upon his glory, his goodness, and his love. You see, the gospel is not only for the beginning of the Christian life. It's how we live the Christian life is that each day the goodness of the gospel washes over us again and we realize all my sins are forgiven and I'm accepted and I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit to live for Jesus today. And we do that day after day after day all the way to heaven and God by his spirit teaches us and shapes us and makes us like Christ so that we love others just as Christ loved us. Second, if we're to keep the new commandment, we must spend time with one another. This is hard for our culture because our culture teaches us to value time more than people. In fact, we know how much we think about people and how much we think people are worth 
based on how much time we're willing to apportion to them over the course of the day or over the course of the week. But you see, that is the wrong perspective. Uh, You cannot love people if you do not spend time with them. You must be in their presence. Uh, You must have opportunity to sacrifice yourself for their good. Uh, we, We have to be willing to do that. Now, one way to spend time with believers is to be committed to being present when we gather together as a body to worship the Lord on Sunday morning so that we can worship the Lord together and have opportunity to pray with one another and, and hear how we're really doing and, and look for opportunities to grow deeper in our relationships. But again, we prayed during the pastoral prayer for our community groups because those are beginning in just a few weeks and they give us another opportunity to spend more time with people who belong to Jesus so that we can grow deeper in our relationships with them and know them. Again, we're going to have nine community groups meeting throughout the week on Sunday, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Those groups are led by faithful men who the elders have put in those positions for the sake, in part, of helping us grow as a church in our Christ-like love for one another. If we're going to love people, we must spend time with them. Third, If we're to keep the new commandment, we must be willing to be known. We must be willing to be known. Well, what do I mean by that? I mean that people do a good job of wearing masks. I mean that people can put a good face on. They can, can, you know, portray themselves. You know, there's the real you, and then there's, you know, there's the Facebook you or the, the Instagram you. We excel at pretending to be someone other than we truly are. Don't we? Now, in his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer, he talked about the difference between knowing a horse and knowing people. He kind of highlights this. I think it's a helpful illustration. He says the people who know horses, I don't know horses, but, but some of you do. People who know horses, they can spend a few days with a horse, and they know all about that horse that they will ever know. It's personality, characteristics, strength, aptitudes, all of it. They know all that they're ever going to know. But then he said this about humans. He said, unlike horses, people keep secrets. They do not show everybody all that is in their hearts. You may spend months and years doing things in company with another person and still have to say at the end of that time, I don't really know him at all. Perhaps you've experienced that in your relationships with others. It's very insightful. What it means is this. If, If this church is going to be characterized by real relationships where we know and love one another, we must be willing to be known. We must be willing to take down the guards and take off the mask so that as we spend time with people, people can know us so that they can actually love us and not the persona that we've been portraying. Does that make sense? Now, that is an act of faith because one of our deepest fears is rejection. What will free you to do this? It's the gospel. It's the fact that you are accepted by the one whose opinion matters, and that's God. And so I am free now because I'm perfectly accepted. I am free now to be who I truly am with you so that you can actually minister to me and so that I can actually minister to you. That's such a helpful, insightful thing. It it does take faith, and it does take love. But the more we know ourselves or allow ourselves to be known by others, the better we're going to be able to love one another. So by meditating on the gospel, spending time with others, allowing ourselves to be known, we'll be enabled, we'll be helped to fulfill this commandment, love one 
another. Now, more briefly, a second point. The evidence love provides. Verse 35. In the early third century, the church father Tertullian wrote an apology. It's uh, it's a defense of Christianity because believers really, through much of the Roman Empire at that point, were being persecuted, some having everything they owned taken, some being killed in games and in other ways. But one of the ways that he defended Christianity, who were being maligned and and, uh, accused of all kinds of evil, one of the ways that he defended Christians was by noting the depth of their love for one another. And it was a love that was It was uh, shocking to the culture. He wrote this, On the first day of the month, if he likes, each Christian puts in a small donation, but only if it be his pleasure and only if he be able, for there is no compulsion, all is voluntary. These gifts are, as it were, piety's deposit fund, for they are not taken from there and spent on feasts and drinking and house and feasts, but to support and bury poor people to supply the want of boys and girls destitute of money and parents, and of old persons who are now confined to their homes, such too as have suffered shipwreck. And if if there happen to be any in the mines or banished to the islands or shut up in the prisons for nothing but their faithfulness to the cause of God's church, they become the nurslings of their confession. But it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us, they say, See how they love one another. It is interesting to think that what was shocking and even offensive to many people in the second century was that there was this self-sacrificial love being displayed among those who called themselves Christians that didn't make any sense to a watching world, and yet it marked them off as those who belonged to Jesus. And that's what Jesus tells us in verse 35, that the love we have for one another will mark us off, indeed should mark us off, as those who belong to him. Look at verse 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that the distinguishing feature of what it means to be a Christian is that we should be marked by love for one another. That's the distinguishing thing that we should love one another. Uh, He's saying that when men and women of this world come and they they observe our relationships, they should see something unique. They should see something different. They should see something indeed otherworldly. They should should look at the depth of relationship and listen, the uncommon willingness to serve. Because the world is all about what are you going to do for me? What can I get from you? That's what makes sense to the world. Now, when they come here, what they should see is people who, who are just, how can I serve you? How different that is. That's what they should see. And, and they should recognize something. Uh, this, is, this is what Christians are like. But it's more than that. He's actually saying that our love for one another in the church is the great and final evidence that we belong to Jesus. This is the proof that we belong to Jesus, and the world should be able to see it. It means something. It means that our relationships in this church, Christ Fellowship, that it matters for the gospel. That the way we speak to one another, and the way we pray for one another, and the way that we serve one another, the way that we look out for one another, the way that we overlook petty offenses, the way that we in love go after those that are in sin and need rescue, All of that should be the great and final evidence that we belong to Jesus. It should be on display in our lives. 
Francis Schaeffer called love the untried apologetic. He urged Christians to remember that their love for one another mattered for the gospel. He said this, he said, let us be careful indeed to spend a lifetime studying to give honest answers. In other words, apologetics matters. It makes sense that when people talk to us about why we follow Jesus, we can give them rational, intelligent answers that they, yeah, okay, I understand where you're coming from. That matters, but something matters more. Listen, he says this, but after we've done our best to communicate to a lost world, still we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gave is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. That's how they're going to know you belong to Jesus. Because you love like Jesus. It also means this. It, he's also saying this. He's saying that if you do not love other Christians, but you love yourself, and you isolate yourself, and you live for yourself, and yet you call yourself a Christian, you're lying. Your profession of faith is extremely suspect. After all, how can you say you love Jesus and not care for the church for whom Christ brought, died? How can we do that? 1 John 3, verses 14 to 15. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. That's how we know, because we love them. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Francis Schaeffer put it this way. If an individual Christian does not show love towards other true Christians, the world has a right to judge that he is not a Christian. Heaven is a world of love. If you belong to Christ, you will spend eternal days in a perfect world, a new heaven and a new earth where Christ will be at the center of it all. And there will be this ongoing perfect symphony, if you will, of Christ's love being poured out and our love going back and forth and all there will love and serve and rejoice. But we've seen this morning that God doesn't want us to wait until we get to heaven to experience this. That indeed what was on his heart at the very end in those last hours and moments is that those who follow him would be characterized by this same kind of heaven on earth love. In Christ's fellowship, he can do it in us. He is doing it by his grace and he can do it. And let's pray that he would.